I think for people that are thinking about investing in crypto, especially young people, like just never ever want to have situation where you're up at night worried about something so you never ever ever invest more than like you can lose so like whenever you invest you just say that's that's gone like that maybe that money is gone and the most important thing in life is like family friends you know having having a good life you don't want to be worrying about investments all the time most important things in life is your loved ones and the time that you spend with them you'll get various cycles to make your millions just like how people who missed the 2013 cycle got the 2017 cycle the people who missed the 2017 cycle got the 2021 cycle and for the people who might have missed all of those cycles they might now have the 2024 cycle hopefully <laughs> Right. Welcome everyone to the Christmas special episode of The Rundown with Shiv and Michael. Michael has got a really sharp jacket today and for a change, I'm not wearing the black jacket that I get always comments that don't I have any other thing to wear apart from black, but black is my favorite color. But for the Christmas special, I got my blue jumper on. So welcome to the Christmas special episode, Michael. I love it. You're looking sharp as well. Excited to be here. Hello, everybody. And yeah, super excited for this the Christmas special. I think, you know, Shiv and I thought it'd be a great idea to just sort of go through and, and kind of share our journeys into crypto. I know when I got started, you know, I was kind of on my own to some extent, and it was really hard to enter the space. There's a little bit more like infrastructure and educational resources and things like that out there now. But we thought this episode would serve as potentially something just to help people that, you know, maybe have been studying this space, they're sitting on the sidelines, they're they're sort of wondering if there's a place for them in crypto. And we'll just share our stories. And, and hopefully that helps others out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole point of Christmas is all about family and giving. And I think that's why rather than talking about the market, both Michael and I decided that since this will be the first Christmas special episode of the rundown, let's talk about our respective journeys. My journey was not as much alone as it was Michael, but I've seen Michael's journey because I was in New York at the time when we got connected. And it's great that uh, after three years, we finally collaborated for the rundown. And now we're creating this repository where we get a chance to give back to the community, giving them the right education or the right resources to think. So can't wait to kick things off, Michael. So let me ask you the questions. You are my special guest on the rundown today. Okay. At least for the starters, uh, before the roles get reversed. But I want to start off about your story, man. I got mad respect for you. And that's why being somebody who is hard to work with, that's what people tell me that I am. I choose my business partners, people that I want to collaborate with, organizations that I want to collaborate with very acutely, not really driven by commercials as such, which you know. So great that I have a business partner and a co-host in you, although I know your story, I think it's very important that our guests also get to know about Michael Nato and how he got into crypto. So let me bring my kind of like proof of work podcast hat back on with Michael Nato as my special guest. So Michael, it seems everyone that has made it to Web3 as a story about when they first learned about crypto. It used to be Bitcoin first for everyone, but now the ecosystem is really large with folks finding their way into the space with no interaction with Bitcoin. Like a lot of people get exposed to crypto with Dogecoin or Shiba Inu based on the tweets of some of the richest people in the world. I want to hear your rabbit hole story. What year was it? 
What were you doing? When did you believe like, okay, I need to double down and dedicate everything into crypto? Yeah, it's a great question. Like a lot of people, when I first started to learn about Bitcoin, I remember having like a visceral reaction to the first time I ever like saw it. And it was in the news. It was because of Silk Road. So this was like 2013 period, 10 years ago or so. And the Silk Road story was happening. This was like a black marketplace where they were using Bitcoin. It was one of the first actual cases of Bitcoin, which was illicit finance. That was the first use case. It's not the only one, fortunately. And so, yeah, it kind of came onto my radar like, okay, there's a digital currency, things being mined. Like it sounded so incredibly out there, but it, I had this visceral reaction to it. Like I need to learn something about this. I remember asking some people, like some friends about it, and it was just kind of written off. It was just like, I don't know, it's something popped up in the news. Like, don't worry about it. Forget about it. I didn't go into the rabbit hole unfortunately, at that time. I wish I had. But then it came around again, and I was fortunate to be working at MIT in the next bull run. So there was a bull run in 2013. There was another one in 17. And then this time, it was a little bit different because there were people in my office that were into Bitcoin. And, you know, Ethereum was on the scene at this point. But it, for me, it was really Bitcoin was the, the entry point. And so I started to, again, it was really on my own, just trying to understand. And I wasn't really talking to friends and family about it at the time. I was just kind of doing my own thing. I was working commercial real estate. I was just kind of like learning and reading about Bitcoin. And then the space just really blew out again in the next cycle. So that was when I moved my career over to the space. I think that was an interesting time to sort of kind of change your career, go from like a really good corporate job at like a really, you know, world renowned institution. And just having some of those conversations with friends and family was kind of interesting. And we could probably go into some of that. But yeah, my entry point was Bitcoin. And it took a couple cycles for me to really get it. And that it really took, I would say, you know, hundreds of hours of study to build conviction that this was like really something that was really interesting to me. And I thought it was like bulletproof and that it just it just kept pulling on me. I just couldn't ignore it. So which year was it? 2017? or 2016? So it was 2017 when I was at, at MIT. I mean, so that was when, you know, I just started spending more time in it. I had, there was a guy in our office that was like a Bitcoin guy. And so, you know, I started to just get, go deeper into it at that point. But I didn't really start really investing until after COVID. So it was really after the COVID crash. So I kind of studied it from a distance for a couple of years. And then after that crash period, I was ready to come in as an investor. And, and then the space just really kind of, you know, you had DeFi summer like around that period. So it really kind of scaled out pretty quickly. I and mean, then I moved my career in thereafter. But yeah, Bitcoin was the first thing for me. Are you still friends with that Bitcoin guy? that you were referring to? I wish I was. So he actually retired. He wasn't an older gentleman. He was a young guy, but he did so well on Bitcoin that said, I'm, I'm going to go bedtime with my family. So he was very, very early into the space. And I haven't talked to him since then. No. Maybe now is the time to reconnect. End of your holiday exchange. Uh, tell him what you're doing with the rundown and DeFi report and all the great stuff that you're doing. And since he's retired, uh, yeah, it would be a good chat so that we can like, know about it. But great story. So tell me this thing, man. Like, I'm really curious. Yeah, you're right. Working for MIT Endowment Fund, like that's a dream job for a lot of investment professionals. And you were working with the real estate team there, but as an investment professional as such for the MIT Endowment Fund, like most people wouldn't leave. So what drew you to get out of that and do 100% in the crypto, man? Like a lot of people would say you're crazy. A lot of people said I was crazy for sure. I think I got a little bit better over the years of just like allowing myself to get pulled towards different things and not, and just be curious and not 
prejudge things. So I think that was like really important to just have that curiosity and just like try to understand and not judge. That was where I was coming from. Of course, everyone else, you know, around you sees you as something, right? If you've done accounting and finance your whole career and you've worked at these, you worked in real estate, like people just view you as that. So when you come say, well, I think I'm going to do this, it can be hard to sort of for people to understand where you're coming from. For me, I always had it in the back of my head that I was going to do something else with my career. So I, for whatever reason, when I graduated school and went into accounting, I knew that I wasn't like the prototypical accountant. For me, it was like a practical way to enter the business world. And if you understand accounting, you understand how businesses work and it's just a great foundational skill. And so, but I always had this sort of entrepreneurial element to me that I was always interested in different things. I was always doing side hustles. I would rent apartments in Boston in my free time. My brother's a brewer and we like went through this like discovery process to start a brewery at one point. You know, I've always been investing. I've always just kind of had like little things on the side. Yeah, it was just kind of like the confluence, I think, of all of these things coming together and then just feeling like this could be a really big thing. It's new and it's misunderstood. So to me, like I didn't make this decision hastily. So like I really spent a lot of time and I went through every single, I remember going through every single naysayer argument. And so I wrote everything down and I just went through every single one and tried to figure out if those things were correct or not. And what I found was like some of them were specifically correct, but they weren't directionally. I didn't think they were directionally correct. Just like, you know, Bitcoin was used by criminals, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to be used by criminals, like every technology, things like that. So I was kind of going through that list came out and then I basically took my study and I went around and just started at this is before I moved my career and I started asking all my friends, fans, family about Bitcoin and crypto. And I tried to prove myself wrong. Um, so I tried to find people to tell me why I was wrong, basically unpeel the logic of what they were telling me. So if they told me Bitcoin is only used by criminals, I would sort of try to logically unwind if that's true or not. And through that process, I realized that this is completely misunderstood in the market. So there's two opportunities. There's probably an opportunity from an investment perspective, and there's probably an opportunity from like a career or business or entre entrepreneurship perspective. If something's misunderstood and it's really early, that's where the opportunities are. And so I think that was the way to view it that, you know, just because nobody gets it doesn't mean it's not real. It's because that's actually the opportunity. And so that was kind of what gave me the conviction to move forward. And I'm also just I grew up with three brothers. I'm an extremely competitive person, you know, for, for good or bad. And so the fact that all these people were telling me, no, 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 this is a bad idea. You know, I kind of loved like proving people wrong. So it was kind of like actually motivating and giving me the extra push to, to move in. So I think it's just a kind of a combination of, of all those different things. And yeah, you probably do have to be a little bit crazy to, to actually actually make the, make the leap. So which month and which year did you officially leave your day-to-day -day job at MIT? I left in 2019 full-time. I was very fortunate that they actually kept me on as a part-time employee for like basically 50% of the time. And then I was doing entrepreneurial stuff on the side. And that's when I eventually made my, my move to Invedium, uh, which was the first crypto startup that I worked for in the industry. So curious, when you told your reporting manager or the hiring manager or the human resources that I want to move part-time. Did you say you want to move part-time because you are spending the rest of the time in crypto or was it the rest of the time in some entrepreneurial pursuits? It was entrepreneurial pursuits. They knew that I was interested in crypto because I was writing about it on LinkedIn. They were asking me about it. And so, yes, they did know that I was interested in crypto, but I wasn't like telling them that I was going to start a crypto company at the time. That was during the period that I started to write on LinkedIn. So they, they kind of knew what, 
what was going on. And did you tell yep. your family that you are doing things in crypto and that's why you have chosen to pursue part-time work at MIT Endowment Fund? Yeah. And I was also working with my brother on a project as well. He, he's an entrepreneur as well. So we were working on that. He's still running that business, but it became clear that like I needed to kind of do my own thing. And then that's where crypto came in and it started at a Invedium, which was another startup. In the spirit of Christmas, is your brother in crypto now? Since you are a very well-known figure in crypto? He is not. He's not in crypto. He is in marketing uh, analytics. Super smart guy, but yeah, not not into crypto. Not yet. Not yet. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> not yet. Cool. Tell me, man. So the story, 2017, 2019. So obviously 2017 in December, we saw the peak at that time of Bitcoin, close to 20,000 US dollars. Then we started seeing a decline across the board. And really 2018 and 2019 was the start of the bear market, which happened till March 2020. So what was it like joining a crypto startup like at the bottom? But at that time, people wouldn't know, right, that that's the bottom. At that time, it was probably suicidal to join a crypto startup, right? From a lot of people's perspective. So what was it like? So by the time I got to Invenium, the bull market had sort of kicked off. They were sort of riding the wave. They had just raised $25 million. So it wasn't right at the bottom. A new round, it was their Series A. They had a strategic investor and like a large fund administrator at the time. It was actually kind of interesting. It was sort of like as the market was turning. And so it was lots of VC money was entering like the entire sort of blockchain space. It was interesting. And for people that aren't aware, I worked for a company called Invenium. Today, we're primarily focused on crypto assets and crypto networks and protocols. But there's, you know, a lot going on in the tokenization of like real world assets and private market assets. And that's really the ecosystem that Invenium sits in the middle of. And I was the director of ecosystem strategy. And what they're trying to do is help to inform price discovery of tokenized assets, such as commercial real estate, private equity, private debt, things like that. Things that should be trading on blockchains because of the, the added efficiency, potential liquidity, the ability to like sort of rationalize the assets and democratize access to those. And that space, I believe, will eventually come to fruition. It's moving a little bit slower just because there's a lot of complexity with when you're dealing with moving something from off-chain to on-chain. It just introduces lots more complexity, especially with regulations. And these are all, you know, regulated assets. They're, they're existing securities um, as well. So that space is moving a little bit slower. I'm still bullish on it, but ended up deciding that, you know, I was spending a lot of my time writing and studying crypto networks and crypto protocols and crypto native assets that power those protocols and networks. And that's really where my interest has really kind of blossomed and eventually, you know, went to the DeFi report, which which is a company I founded a few years ago, and, and we can get into some of, of that course, as well. We need yep. to talk about the DeFi report. Everybody tells me for the listeners that we have in India that are not that exposed to DeFi report, that what is this DeFi report behind Michael that is on this painting? Would love for you to take us through the genesis of DeFi report when that idea came to you. When was it and uh, how did that evolve to actual, like, the operation of it? So it started as just kind of me holding myself accountable for the research. Like I mentioned, I was doing a lot, like, really, really deep stuff. And I was telling my friends and stuff, like, if you really want to understand Bitcoin, you probably need to spend, like, 200 hours uh, minimum kind of going through it, which most people, you know, most people just don't have that much time. They're, they're working difficult jobs. Some of them have families and 
children to take care of. So a lot of people don't have the time. But, you know, I was really going through a ton of research and it was a way for me to hold myself accountable. So basically put this research into written reports and Substack was sort of new at the time and they were kind of making it really easy for writers to publish content. 2020 was when I started writing. I didn't launch the, I was writing on LinkedIn newsletters in 2020 and then I launched the DeFi report in 2021. So you launched it in 2021 and was it like the first quarter, second quarter? It was July. So it was starting Q3 of 2021, officially launched it. And that was about a year after the DeFi summer was July, August of 2020. Yeah, so it was about a year after DeFi, even became a thing. And yeah, I was, you know, I think the biggest question for me was just like, get research out there and hold myself accountable. I want to be public, right? The reason that I started writing was because I wanted to put my name out there. I wanted to put my research out there as a way to hold myself accountable to what I'm writing, what I'm saying, what I'm putting out there on LinkedIn. And then the other benefit of this was, you know, you're getting feedback from people that are reading it. And so I started to just promote it on LinkedIn and it's still pretty small, but we've been able to build a pretty strong brand around just trusted data information. I think the way that I write and the way that I use analogies and things like that is, is helpful for people. I and mean, the biggest compliment that I get from the DeFi report is when people tell me like, you know, I just, I share your reports with my dad. Right. And then he just gets it right. Cause the way you're writing it is, is a way that people can understand. So like, that's the goal is just like break this down, help people understand it. You know, it's sort of this been this like sort of journey where over time people started reaching out to me and asking for consulting and things like that. This is like mostly through LinkedIn, which is an incredible tool for business for anybody out there watching. Start writing on LinkedIn and develop relationships and networking. It's just a really powerful tool. But yeah, I just started to get these inquiries and started to have calls and say, okay, maybe there's consulting here. I ended up leaving Invenium about a year ago. So I've been full-time on the DeFi report and it kind of just stood up as a consulting business, working with startups and asset managers. But the, the long-term vision for the DeFi report is essentially like a sell side, a boutique sell side research and data company. So there's, you know, we've partnered with data companies from the start to really just be able to unearth the, all of the insights that are coming from on-chain, from all these blockchains and protocols. My view is that these are on-chain businesses and they have fundamentals and there's ways to analyze these. And just like you know, when you know, Benjamin Graham was introducing like his analysis of securities and, and later Warren Buffett picked that up and introduced ways to value stocks, I believe that is happening today in crypto. And I'm excited to sort of play a role in that working on, alongside data data providers such as Token Terminal. So that's the ultimate kind of direction the DeFi report is moving. Yeah, I think that's the story of the DeFi report for now anyways. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, look, LinkedIn is the reason that we both got connected. So I second what you said that LinkedIn is a very powerful business tool, marketing tool, relationship tool. It's a very undervalued tool and people should be more active, right? From students of uh, different subjects to professionals. A lot of value that you can gain through LinkedIn. But yeah, look, uh, I still want to dig deep a little bit on the DeFi report. So you launched it in July 2021. When did the idea came? Like, when was the first time you came up with the name The DeFi Report? Yeah, actually, it's a good question. I, I spent a lot of time thinking through, like, a lot of people were starting publications around that time and using their names. And so I was trying to think to myself, like, let's, what if this actually becomes something bigger than what I think it is right now? It shouldn't be my name. That was the first thing that I determined that it shouldn't be my name because if I want to sell it at some point, then it, 
it has to have its own name and its own brand separate from me. And so the DeFi report was just a simple name that I thought, you know, this is something people may be searching this on Google and it will just, you know, it'll have like good, it's a good search term. So that was one thing. It's really simple. It's easy to remember. We wanted to make sure that the was the, the first part of it, sort of like you have the Washington Post and the New York Times. It just adds a little more to the, to the name and to the brand. And I went on, you know, I think I went on some website where I could just create a logo for $20. And it's pretty funny to actually go back and look at that. It's sort of like this retro, like hot pink and neon logo that I created. I'm not an artist. Uh, my girlfriend has helped me create like the next iterations of the logo and it's much better and much cleaner now. But yeah, that was kind of it. Like it was just, I just thought I had conviction that I'm, I'm going to be riding a wave of new industry. So I started to plan long, a little bit more long-term on what that could look like. But yeah, I don't know any, any more prying there. I think the biggest decision was just, you know, deciding that I had to build a brand and, and partner with with data companies. That was kind of the, the, the vision from the start. And I think, you know, the landscape of research in crypto, there's not a lot of people that have just like focused on data and just like, you know, objective analysis. So like, to me, that was always the most important thing and just build trust with people. And I think people trust you when you communicate clearly and they can understand what you're saying. And that's part of building the brand is building, building trust as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, look, uh, in crypto, everyone wears three or four hats. You, like many of us, are long-term investor in this space. Let's move on to your approach to investing in crypto, because that's what a lot of listeners would like to know. What is Michael's personal investing approach in crypto? For sure. And yes, lots of people wear different different hats. Uh, I feel like I'm wearing 10 uh, right now myself. But yes, I mean, I think most people, this is one of the fascinating things about crypto is you birthed a new industry that is a technology industry, right? I think most people think crypto is like just a gambling industry or something, but this is, I believe what we have birthed is a new data infrastructure for the internet. And the interesting thing about crypto is that though there are investable assets as part of that. So the infrastructure is investable as if you were investing in internet protocols in the early 90s. So the industry is has this like everybody's investing, even if you are just an operator, almost everyone has investments, which I think is kind of interesting. And I don't think there's ever been, I don't know if there's ever been like a, another like industry that gets birthed like that. So there's this financial element that just bleeds through everything in crypto. As far as like my strategy with investing, it's very long term. So I'm not a trader. And, you know, we talked about earlier, like with my Bitcoin investment, like it took me a while to make that. Like it's mostly me just studying data and studying the markets and studying the like crypto Twitter and behavioral activity and things like that. And then identifying like kind of where you're at and like the big cycles and just playing long term games. That's that's kind of my strategy. I think for people that are thinking about investing in crypto, especially young people, like just never ever want to have situation where you're up at night worried about something. So you never, ever, ever invest more than like you can lose. So like whenever you invest, you just say that's that's gone. Like that maybe that money is gone. And the most important thing in life is like family, friends, you know, having having a good life. You don't want to be worrying about investments all the time. So to me, that's a strategy is like I really anchor to data, really study what's happening and then be really patient. You don't have to chase things. There's, there's there's always new opportunities in crypto and you just, the worst thing you can do is just like FOMO into something because your friend saw some coin or something like do your own research, develop your own conviction and play long-term games. Kind of my, my advice there. Absolutely. I think you said it very well. Most important things in life is your loved ones 
and the time that you spend with them, you'll get various cycles to make your millions. Just like how people who missed the 2013 cycle got the 2017 cycle. The people who missed the 2017 cycle got the 2021 cycle. And for the people who might have missed all of those cycles, they might now have the 2024 cycle, hopefully. I think very well said. And if there is one message so far that you should take out from Michael's journey is definitely this one. But Michael, uh, coming back to the future, what is your vision for how Web3 and crypto will play out in the coming years? Yeah, so I sort of hinted at it a few minutes ago, but yeah, my view here is that everything comes back to data. And so this is really the, the study of like having conviction with crypto and Web3 crypto. And when we talk about crypto, I'm talking about public blockchains in protocol. And so to me, what those things are doing is, is essentially installing a new data layer into the internet. And so as we do that, we have, we've sort of financialized the ability to, to invest in, in those networks and the assets that power them. And so that's the first phase of crypto is this like sort of bootstrapping, this wild west, this like period of innovation where we don't really have like perfectly clear use cases. They're starting to emerge. This is very normal for any you know, an innovation cycle. So we're kind of in the in the middle of that. The next phase of this, in my opinion, is a more sort of maturation of the, the networks themselves, the use cases for them, and then regulation around the markets. So so regulation around how projects can release tokens, how investors can access those tokens, those types of things. So it becomes a little bit more of a clear regulation, clear consensus in the market for use cases. And once that plays out, then you get the real sort of hockey stick growth. And that's when almost every Fortune 500 company has a blockchain project and they're they're building out. And we're seeing certainly plenty of signs of that already. Um, so I think we're sort of heading into that period. And then, you know, just over time, just kind of like the internet, it'll just sort of bleed its way into like every single business model on the internet because you're installing a new data layer. And so that that is going to impact, I believe, just about everything on the internet over a long enough arc. And so that's like the, the high level thesis for me. Started with Bitcoin. Now we got Ethereum and you have like these new applications and there's really like a couple different revolutions, if you will, or evolutions like Bitcoin is kind of off to the side. That's like digital gold. It's sort of a money thing. You have Ethereum, that's smart contracts, and that's the ability to do, you know, DeFi and, and lots of different you know, applications, NFTs, and how that's going to impact lots of different industries. But yeah, that's kind of the, the arc, I guess. It's just this is a new data infrastructure. That's the most important thing to understand. And over a long enough period of time, I think it's just going to slowly seep its way into everything, but it's infrastructure. So most people will just be using an interface, a web interface or a mobile phone, and they're going to be interacting with blockchains underneath and not really know it. Kind of my view. Anyways. Amazing. Yeah, look, uh, I also agree. I mean, at the end of the day, blockchain is a distributed ledger technology. So for people who know what blockchain is, apart from just the buzzword, it is all about data. So well said. So Michael, I think it's time for a role reversal. And uh, I'm actually on the hot seat now, which I'm never because I'm so used to being the host of a podcast rather than a guest of a podcast episode. It's been a while since I've been a guest, you know, for a podcast episode. So all those people out there, you know, I'm still available as a guest for a podcast episode. But yeah, Michael. A time for role reversal. You got any questions for me? Let's do it. Let's put you on the hot seat. You know, you've been involved in crypto now for a number of years. Like, I think sort of similar to me, I'd love to hear like your experience as you came into crypto. You were working at one of the largest banks in Australia, really solid, you know, traditional finance background. What happened? Like, what was it that like sparked your interest in crypto? And like, how did we get here? How did you end up on a podcast with me? Yeah, that's it. Uh... 
that's a long story. So I need your help in order to interrupt me if I'm making this into a one hour special. But yeah, I'll try to be as concise as possible. So I'm an Indian born Australian. So I was born in India and then at a young age, I moved to Australia. India, as you know, the GDP per capita of the country is less than 3000 US dollars. It's the most populated country. It is now the fifth largest economy going towards being third largest economy. But the fact of the matter is, it is a relatively poor country still because of the GDP per capita being less than $3,000. So for me, going from India to then living in Australia, where it's an advanced economy, the GDP per capita of Australia is around the $50,000, $60,000 when I came there. So, you know, it was a culture shock for me because I came to Australia at that impressionable age. So money automatically became a topic of interest for me. So my interest in Bitcoin came later on, but my interest in money originated with me moving to Australia at a young age and noticing just how different the so social structure is. The topic of money doesn't come often. You do not see poverty as much. So automatically the curious kid that I was, you know, my interest came that what is money? Why is it that not only India, but that whole subcontinent region that comprises of, you know, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Bhutan, all these countries that are, you know, our neighboring countries of India, they all are not rich countries. So why is that? Uh, so that got me into politics, all of that. So. I was interested in finance, did uh, my undergrad in accounting and finance, got a job in traditional financial services, uh, worked for close to five years in wealth management and two and a half years in National Australia Bank. And yeah, look, uh, over time, I just realized that uh, this Bitcoin thing that really sparked my interest, even though I had heard about Bitcoin in 2011, and I regret not doing anything about it because I thought it's a Ponzi scheme at that time. But it was in 2016 when I was working in wealth management and I was tracking alternative assets, you know, as a research topic for our clients that I got exposed that Japan was looking to legalize Bitcoin in 2016. So that sparked my curiosity. That was my rabbit hole moment. The more I self-educated myself, the more I was like, okay, this could be the next big thing. This could be the future of money. So self-educated by myself and then uh, participated in the 2017 bull cycle. So did decent for myself being a participant of that. And then uh, used those funds to self-fund my MBA and uh, come to your country, to New York University Stern School of Business to study MBA and uh, study blockchain academically. Yeah, so that's my story of how I got into crypto. I love it. So you used some of the proceeds to further educate yourself on, on crypto. And that sort of leads me to like the next question. So you've decided, okay, this is really important. You've done well in terms of your investments. How did you end up at like NYU. And like, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about the experience. This was around the 2020. Was this during COVID that you ended up? So during COVID, you're by yourself in New York, COVID, which is probably the worst place in the world to be. Um, and then somehow out of this, you end up writing a book called Protocols of Money. So I would love to hear like that, what that period of your, of your life was like. Yeah. So look, uh, when I came to New York, Nobody knew that COVID is going to happen. So I landed in New York and, you know, was so buzzed, uh, started uh, my term, you know, did one entire semester and then COVID happened. Uh, I think it was end of March that uh, New York was locked down along with other regions. So it was really end of March that we had the lockdown. So 
I got a lot of good opportunities prior to March 2020 to build my network in New York City. Shout out to Professor Ian D'Souza, who's a professor of blockchain, behavioral finance, and venture capital at NYU Stern School of Business, who was really my mentor at that time. And I thought I knew a lot about crypto when I entered his classroom for the first time. But after the first two classes, I realized I still have a lot to learn in crypto. So really shout out to him and all of my classmates that were there in the classroom. But yeah, come into writing the book. So yeah, March 2020, we entered lockdown and you are right. The first wave of COVID, people have actually forgotten about COVID. I'll be just blunt. And I'm just amazed at the human consciousness of our generation and future generations. For something such big of an event, we've kind of like forgotten about it. It's like when the World War II happened, you saw that generation talking about World War II or remembering the learnings from it and evolving for like decades. But I think our generation and the future generation will live in that TikTok style that we forget even major events like COVID very soon. Uh, but yeah, like uh, first uh, wave of COVID that happened, New York City was the epicenter. Like uh, it was terrible. So yeah, our classes became online. We still studied, but it was online. And because we were locked out, I was living in East Village in my one bedroom apartment. So as a result of that, I was living alone. Uh, you can't really go out because people were scared for their lives. So I literally had nothing better to do, but I still had the energy in me. So I was like, you know, I consulted my professor, Professor Ian D'Souza. I'm like, I can't network anymore because we're living in an age of chaos. At least that period was, you know, people were losing their jobs. It was just chaos at that time because nobody predicted what happened. So I just doubled down on research. And uh, something that was dear to me was, again, the topic of money. And for me, I always go to first principles. I have always been a good student of history. So it became natural to me that, look, why don't I do research on money and what could be the evolution of money in the form of Bitcoin or possibly Ethereum with its smart contracts technology? Because you're right, at that time, the DeFi summer was heating up. And that is something that I got exposed because of me being in NYU. Otherwise, when I was in Australia, I wasn't necessarily introduced to the concept of DeFi, but it was when I got to New York and started studying, then I got exposed to, you know, the synthetics protocol, which is founded by an Australian guy, coincidentally, but like compound protocol, all these protocols I got exposed to before they actually publicly launched. So yeah, I had nothing better to do. Being stuck in my East Village apartment, I already knew the history of money, but it was about doing that primary and secondary research, talking to professor, doing that secondary research and creating a manuscript because we were stuck there for two months. And as you know, being an American, if uh, New York City is not uh, shut down, you can spend a lot of time in New York outside study or work and never get bored and still be like, I need more time. But because the city was shut down, you, I literally had so much more time and energy that I can devote to. So in a matter of four months, I was able to, because we were stuck, I was stuck in my apartment. So in a matter of two months where we literally, I used to go to Target and come back with groceries. I just used to study uh, for the semester and used to do research. So 
by four months, I was able to create like a good enough manuscript. I presented it to professor. He loved it. And by the time I graduated, he supported me with it. It became really like an NYU student community project where students from NYU Tisch School of Arts helped me with the digital marketing, helped me with the promo video and all. And uh, in January 2021, it was published then. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and just like, what was the thesis? What was... Are you seeing it play out? Like this was, it's been a few years now, but yeah, protocols of money. I'm curious, like what is the takeaway for someone? I know it's, it's up on Amazon. It's got a ton of reviews. And, and so, yeah, I'd love to, love to hear maybe what's the takeaway from that. Yeah, absolutely. So look, uh, for the first one year we had a digital marketing, we, you know, uh, actively advertised it on the platforms and, uh, quite generous that it did well for the first month it was on the top 10 Amazon hot releases in the economic history category because the book Protocols of Money is a primer on the history and evolution of money. And that's where the whole thesis was that what we are witnessing with Bitcoin and if somebody knows the genesis of Bitcoin, which I've covered in my book as well, is that it was supposed to be a monetary instrument. I mean, that's the intention of it. That's what it mentions in the white paper. If you see the 3rd of January, 2009, Genesis block is written over there in the hidden message that the Bank of England governor is bailing out another centralized bank. You know when you study about Bitcoin history and you go to bitcointalk.org, which is a gold mine of information, which not many people leverage, uh, but it's a gold mine of information where Satoshi for at least one and a half years actively talked Hal Feeney actively talked that it's already there. The idea was that this is an experiment. We do not know what it could be, but this is an experiment and this is a monetary experiment. And given my economics background in undergrad and also during my MBA as well, I did economics at NYU. I realized that money has evolved over time. You know, it's not like we had paper currency with people's faces printed on back in the BC era, right? Back then we didn't even have a printing press. So there was no paper money. People used to use in certain civilizations, which were not that advanced. They used to use dog's teeth for keeping accounting. Accounting, yeah. I was going to yeah. say, it's really just accounting. It's yeah. just accounting. So yeah, people used to do debit credit, you know, using different instruments. Then came the Bronze Age, Iron Age. I'm not going to bore people with a history lesson over here because... It's only history geeks that love the this book. Topic. You got to read the book. You got to buy the book. You got to buy the book. Yeah. But yeah, like basically what we had was a commodity theory of money, which is the idea that money is backed by something with a limited supply. Then we obviously know the Great Depression happened where the American president of the time decided that gold convertibility at commercial banks will stop and eventually a transition would happen which eventually led to the Bretton Woods system that made U.S. dollar the global reserve currency, where U.S. used to take the responsibility for all the other countries to help them convert gold against their currency. That's why the Fort Knox is traditionally so uh, important. That's why gold reserves in central bank is so important. So we had a commodity theory of money, whether it was in the form of silver, or in the form of gold in for centuries. But then came Richard Nixon in the 70s, one of the most popular American presidents. If you go by Simpsons, because he features in Simpsons all the time, his caricature. But uh, yeah, like uh, he decided, and of course, you know, he was uh, advised to do this. It's not like it was his decision. He was advised to 
remove the gold convertibility and uh, create a free floating exchange currency system for the world. And that's why, like, ever since that era in the 70s, we have the Australian dollars that are listed and traded, and it's the supply economics uh, that governs its uh, fluctuations. And then we entered that paradigm of the fiat monetary system. We are currently living in a fiat monetary system where it's only 52 years old in recorded human history that comprises of 5,000 years. So it's literally 1% of recorded human history that we are living in this monetary system. Yet, people think that the current monetary system is like the Ten Commandments that cannot be changed and it's a perfect system. And that's where my argument comes in that, you know, in 2011, we had the sovereign debt crisis with, you know, Greece going bankrupt because their GD their debt to GDP was above 100%, although their debt was only $100 billion. You know, nominally it wasn't much, but they were on the verge of bankruptcy. So that just got me thinking, and you know, a lot of things were happening. Cyprus decided to charge people Instead of paying interest for bank deposit, they used to charge people interest in 2011 for their deposits in their Cyprus bank accounts. So a lot of those things, when I put it in my research and started looking at it, I'm like, we're entering a new paradigm. I need to give credit uh, to the book, The Bitcoin Standard as well. I think that book was very influential uh, for me as a writer as well, you know, to see the power of Bitcoin or what the future could be. So yeah, basically the book is about the history and evolution of money. And the thesis is that monetary system has always evolved when the incumbent system's limitation has been exposed and a better system has come out. And what we are witnessing at the moment is that this fiat system is beyond control of repaying debt. And that's why we need to find a better sound money. And in my opinion, and I think in your opinion as well, if we look at sound money bitcoin is a better version of gold so thereby bitcoin is a better version of hard money then according to me so that was the thesis of the book well yeah thanks for that the overview that's super super interesting it's clear that you have a ton of knowledge that we're gonna have to unpack on in future episodes on the history of money and maybe we'll have to do an episode i think maybe in the future on what would things look like on a bitcoin standard like, I think that would be kind of an interesting episode. So one of the things that's interesting about you is you're an Indian-born Australian. And this is something that we've I've, I've seen a lot of feedback on, the uniqueness of your accent, uh, with, with <laughs> really? that, um, which is great. But I'm curious for you, and, and you know, crypto is a, a global phenomenon. You're in India, you're, you've, you've been in India, I think, just for the last year or so. Spent most of your time in Australia. You've spent time in New York. I'm curious, like, how has this influenced your sort of like entry into the blockchain space and you're interacting with me in the states like i'm curious like how do you think about crypto from like this global perspective and like your cultural background uh, as well yeah look so when i came to india last year after a gap of 16 years so basically i left india when i was a kid so like when i came back after 16 years last year and uh my friends some of them that i you know like uh kept in touch thanks to Facebook, Instagram, these social networks, you still are able to get in touch with your long lost friends that you made where, where you were born and you grew up like a few years, you know, first grade, second grade. So they told me that Shiv, you're a cultural traveler. A lot of people, you know, there are a lot of Indian Americans in India, right? So a lot of people born in India or born to parents who are Indians and then migrated to US 
but they generally stop there. I, born in India, moved to Australia, worked my entire life in Australia, never worked anywhere else outside Australia, but purposefully decided that if I'm going to do MBA, I'm going to do it from US because that's just the capital, uh, you know, that's the financial capital of the world, New York City. So I was like, I want to get educated in the US. And really, when you come as a student, right, and you spend that much of time uh, in a country as a student, you really get immersed to the culture. So in a way, I know the Indian culture, I know the Australian culture, I know the American culture, uh, because I didn't live there as a tourist, I lived there as a student where majority of the classroom buddies that I had were Americans. Yeah, my accent, I, I get that a lot as well. People get confused. Is this Canadian? Is this Australian? Is this American? And I'm like, dude, I do not know, but this is just how I talk. So deal with it. As long as I'm clear, I'm glad. But yeah, this is just how I talk. But that's the thing about traveling and living in so many different countries, right? Well, I'll tell you about my cultural background and how it dictates on how I see crypto. I'll start with India. India is very new to capitalism. India was a socialist country, much like the former Soviet Union prior to 1991. So during the breakout of Soviet Union, it coincided with India opening up for business and becoming a capitalist economy. So the capitalist India is actually only 32 years old. So for them to adapt to the capitalist system being 32 years old, capitalist economy, they still are not that open to crypto. Australia, comparatively, much more open to crypto. A lot of innovation happening there. America, you know it very well. Despite all the chaos among the regulatory silos and the agency that are there and the politics, all the innovation that we see in crypto is actually originating from the US. Crypto is very forward thinking in countries like America and Australia. But in India, not so much, despite having a significant human talent pool that can contribute to it. And one of the examples is Polygon, of course, which is founded by Indian founders. But yeah, I think perception of crypto, uh, the difference between India, Australia and America is probably because India is very new to the whole capitalist mindset. And I think it, that would be a fair argument to be made for China as well. The only caveat between China and India is that India is a democracy. So we have elections over here, just like you have elections over there for a president. We have elections over here for the prime minister. China, as you know, are is under, you know, the communist parties. You don't have voting. You don't have a democracy there. So that's why they can pass laws without any difficulty. But if you look at China history as well, they are also very new to the whole capitalist economy. It's just that it's state-sponsored. So the fact that India and China are not that pro-crypto in comparison to America and uh, Australia, despite having significant human talent pool in both these countries, is more to do with them adopting capitalism as an ideology very recently in comparison to Australia and America. Super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. And, and we're seeing like other areas as well, like Dubai is kind of like a hotbed. You've got Singapore, you've got even Hong Kong is is a really growing market now for crypto. So it's, it's, it is fascinating to see this playing out. I'm curious, like when you think about the global landscape, like how do you see this potentially impacting places like Southeast Asia, Latin America, like what's what's your kind of thinking for, for those types of regions? I'll be quick in this thing because we cover that generally as well during our normal rundown episodes or will in the future. But yeah, look, I think BlackRock spot Bitcoin ETF, when it gets operational, it's only a matter of time. 
before other countries start uh, creating frameworks to create a formal industry out of crypto or at least Bitcoin and Ethereum at the very least. I know that having been in India, especially this year, I get a lot of uh, queries because I'm a professor at two business schools over here. So I get a lot of queries from actual senior executives who are in the traditional financial space in investment management, inquiring about pretty much what we talk about in the rundown on a weekly basis, which is how do you value these things? You know, how do you know whether this crypto is good and this crypto is not good? Uh, so it's only a matter of time. And I think BlackRock spot Bitcoin ETF is going to play a huge role to it, predominantly because they own $10 trillion of assets across the world. Now, that's a size that you can't ignore. Australia, India, you combine both of these countries' GDP. Actually, even if you combine the GDP of Germany in one year, as much, uh, you know, output that these three countries combined produce, even more than that BlackRock owns in assets. So when BlackRock comes in, it's basically telling the world that this is a legitimate asset, despite what people in some big banks might say. Interesting. And then I think our last question to wrap it up here, and I know this is, this is the interesting thing. I'm actually curious about it myself. You know, you're an angel investor as well, and not just, you know, investing in crypto assets like Bitcoin, but investing in startup companies and owning equity. And these things don't necessarily have tokens. You're buying you're buying equity in a, in a crypto business. I'm curious, like, what are some interesting things you learned being part of that space? And then, like, how do you think about investing in, in equity, right, in a crypto company versus potentially a token of, of a similar type company that, that actually has a token in the market. I'm curious, but yeah, we'd love to just learn about your, your experience in angel investing. Yeah, of course. So look, I started angel investing in 2021 when I came back from New York, back to my city, Sydney. So that's where I'm from, Sydney, in the land down under in Australia, beautiful city. So I was curious. I was like, you know, I've got capital. I've done my MBA now. So it's not like I've got a big investment again that I need to make. So I want to get into venture capital. I think it's about time that I get into venture capital since a lot of smart people get into it. And uh, my way of getting into it was uh, being part of the Sydney Angels community, which is the largest uh, angels community or an angel investing club. Sydney is the New York City equivalent of Australia. And so I was part of the Sydney Angels community, learned a lot from great people over there. Some of them are my colleagues, professors at University of New South Wales, some of them have been angel investors for decades, Adrian being one of them, great guys over there. So learned a lot of them on how to do due diligence in startups, invested in an AI startup based out of Sydney. And then I got an opportunity. A friend of mine uh, said that uh, we have been given a mandate to start a Web3 fund vertical uh, in Australia. And I was having talks with uh, my friend Rachel Levine, who was the general partner of the fund at that time. And uh, she said like, you know, you wanted exposure to venture capital. I need to learn a little bit about crypto. So why don't we create some sort of a partnership? And so I invested my personal capital in uh, MHC Digital Finance Web3 Fund, which is based out of Sydney. And through that uh, investment vehicle, we invested in six crypto startups. Some of them have become write-offs now, but some of them had their token generation event, Ethereum being one of those startups. And because they had a token generation event and it has like a token unlock setting, we were able to liquidate and, you know, able to generate positive returns for that. But then there were certain uh, 
portfolio investment of ours like DigiBuild, which is based out of the US, which is an enterprise blockchain software catering to the construction industry. Uh, so it doesn't have any token element to it. It's strictly an enterprise blockchain. You know, it's not permissionless. So enterprise blockchain software. So we own equity in it. It's raised a recent round again. It's doing well. So that has been my experience in uh, crypto startups through that investment vehicle. I thought it's important that I give you the genesis on how I got into angel investing. And yeah, last year I came to India. I invested in an ed tech company. Since I came to India, I wanted to be an angel investor in Indian companies as well. I recently took a profitable exit from it. And that's my drive in education came from ever since I came to India last year. But uh, to answer your question, and I'll be quick as to what traits do I see in crypto startups? Having the experience of the last two years, angel investing in startups and not having home runs in every investment that I made. The number one thing that an angel investor needs to think about is transparency. So I would highly recommend that when you're angel investing in a startup, you have a written contract or an informal verbal promise in a way that the founder needs to give at least quarterly updates in writing. It is very important that you have trust with the founder and the founder, after he receives the money, continues that discipline of providing investor updates. Because if you don't get transparent investor updates, that's a red flag right there. So startups is all about things that you know and then trusting that the founder can execute on that. When you're investing in startups, you're basically investing in the people and their ability to execute and whether the market, you know, will go towards that thesis or not. But more than the market, it's more on the ability of the founders, whether they can execute it, whether they, they would be able to raise the next round or not. That's what you're basically uh, giving them the money at a pre-seed stage or a seed stage. I love it. Yeah, no, it's one thing that um, I've thought a lot about too. Is like, you know, and I wrote a report on this, like when during the depths of the crypto winter, I was looking at a lot of sort of like seed type raises and what those valuations were at at the time versus some of the valuations I was seeing for pretty well-established crypto projects where the token was trading significantly lower than where people were trying to raise seed rounds. So this is an idea on a spreadsheet versus a, a business that's been running for a while. And I thought, wow, that's really the power of crypto assets as these, you know, if you're investing at that level, at the seed stage where you're making pretty bold bets, pretty risky bets, but to be able to access liquidity is just this incredible thing that venture capitalists get with crypto. Yeah, super interesting. We'll have to maybe dig in a little bit deeper, but this has been great. I hope, you know, people get some value. I hope there's maybe a couple nuggets in here, just learning about Shiv's story, learning about my story, where people hopefully can take, have some takeaways and how they approach the industry from an investment perspective, maybe coming in, looking for a job in crypto as well. So yeah, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the episode. Absolutely. And look, uh, before I will close off, I do want to know all the feedback that you got about my accent. What did they ended up thinking? What is my unique. accent? I hear unique. Unique is the word <laughs> I keep hearing. And I, I think unique is a, is a compliment. I think you should be taking that as a compliment. I take that as a compliment. Cool. But yeah, look, on that note, I really wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your family as well, Michael. Yeah, everybody have a safe Christmas. Enjoy Christmas. And we'll see you next week. Happy holidays. Thanks, everybody. Bye.